You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 79, The Eagle's Landing. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. I should also warn you that there is some disturbing content in this episode. Anyway. After his victory over the renegade general André Rigaud in the War of the Knives, Toussaint Louverture was once again the only power on the Haitian political stage. He wrote, quote, I have taken my flight from the region of eagles. I must be prudent in returning to earth. I can alight only upon a rock, and this rock should be the edifice of the Constitution. End quote. An interesting metaphor, given that the eagle would soon be made the national symbol of Napoleonic France, and the eagle would become a nickname for Bonaparte himself. For nearly a decade, Louverture's life had been defined by struggle against a whole host of enemies. Seven years on the battlefield, fighting against the colonial establishment, then against the Spanish and the British. Then there had been a series of political struggles against successive rivals for power, Governor Sontenax, Governor Aduville, and finally General Rigaud. There had been no stability for the people of Haiti, or for Toussaint Louverture personally. Let's not forget that only ten years ago, Toussaint had been an anonymous businessman, quietly tending to his small enterprises, and unknown to basically everyone outside his immediate circle. The last ten years of Haitian history, and of Toussaint's life, had been extraordinary, totally unprecedented, and included some incredible achievements. But a decade of invasion, civil war, and political struggle had taken a terrible toll. The country was in ruins. Perhaps more than half the population had died, and the economy had nearly ground to a halt. The ten years of chaos had taken a personal toll on General Louverture as well. He had become tired and suspicious, and lost some of his famous idealism. Both the country and its leader desperately needed to end the struggle, stop the cycle of challenge and counter-challenge, and restore some modicum of stability, 
so the country could rebuild and begin to heal. As Louverture wrote in that quotation, he and his people had flown high, but now they desperately needed a safe landing. And political developments in Paris may have created an opening for that safe landing. France's new leader, First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte, had signaled his desire to allow the colonies to be ruled under their own laws, tailored to local conditions, rather than insisting on one-size-fits-all dictates from Paris. This opened the door to a Haitian constitution. Toussaint hoped that once his powers were enshrined in law, and France's power to interfere in colonial politics was clearly demarcated, the country would finally be free from the instability which had plagued its politics since the outbreak of the revolution. As he stated in that quotation, a constitution could be the edifice on which he and his people could finally rest after their wild flight to freedom. Shortly after gaining power, Bonaparte sent a three-man commission to Haiti to report back on local conditions and assert the new government's authority. You might be thinking, here we go again, yet another rival to challenge Toussaint's power. But Bonaparte went a different direction than his predecessors. He didn't appoint another ambitious white Frenchman to lead the commission. Napoleon chose a mixed-race Haitian intellectual named Julien Raymond. Far from becoming a rival for power, Raymond and Louverture immediately recognized that they shared a similar outlook and similar goals and vowed to work together. Raymond secured permission from Paris to throw official support behind Louverture's plans for a Haitian constitution. A ten-man commission was appointed, and they immediately got to work. Well, nine of them did. One died shortly after his appointment. As you might expect, they were all Louverture loyalists, but from what we can tell, they carried on their work more or less independently. Toussaint gave them guidelines and let them figure out the details. The document they produced codified the recent authoritarian turn in Toussaint's policies. Louverture would be governor for life, with the right to name his own successor. There would be a legislature, and the colony's trade and foreign policies would be run from Paris but the Constitution also included some not-so-subtle shortcuts that would enable the governor to circumvent Parliament or Paris whenever he saw fit. In effect, Toussaint Louverture would be monarch in all but name. But most importantly, the Constitution banned slavery and racial discrimination in clear, unambiguous language. Quote, Article 3. Slaves cannot exist in this territory. Servitude is therein forever abolished. All people are born, live, and die, free and French. Article 4. All people, regardless of color, are eligible for all employment. Article 5. There shall exist no distinction other than those based on virtue and talent and other superiority afforded by law in the exercise of a public function. The law is the same for all, whether in punishment or in protection. End quote. But it was not all good news for the average people of Haiti. 
The rights of plantation workers, now referred to as cultivators, were even further curtailed. They would now be bound to the land, requiring official permission to move or change jobs, not unlike medieval serfs. Strict laws were enacted against vagrancy, which in practice meant the military did roundups of unemployed people and sent them to the plantations. This was still a far cry from slavery, but it wasn't exactly a shining beacon of freedom either. No surprise that more and more average Haitians were dropping out of colonial society to go live in the mountains and jungles as maroons. By some estimates, there were now more maroons in the Haitian wilderness than there had been before the revolution. Toussaint probably felt he had little choice. The economy was on its last legs. With so much devastation and so many people dead, the country needed everyone pulling together if it was to return to prosperity. And the brutal truth was, work in the cane fields was simply too hellish. Many people would refuse to return to it unless they were coerced. Once again, a terrible sacrifice was demanded of the average people of the colony. Many of Louverture's French advisors and friends begged him not to put this new constitution into effect. They believed he was going too far. With almost all the power in the colony consolidated in the office of the governor, there would be precious little control from Paris. They warned him that this would be seen in France as a de facto declaration of independence, and the consequences could be dire. Toussaint was not worried. When one of his friends raised these concerns, he responded, quote, The French will send commissioners to negotiate with me, end quote. Clearly, he didn't believe he was stepping beyond the pale. In Louverture's mind, the new constitution was just another round in the back and forth between France and Haiti, which had been going on since he'd first allied with the Republicans. In time, things would eventually settle into a stable equilibrium, to the benefit of both countries. And so he pressed on. The Constitution was put into immediate effect. Technically, it was still subject to approval by Paris, but Toussaint claimed that a new code of laws was so desperately needed that he had no choice but to promulgate it on a provisional basis. Hopefully, Napoleon would understand. After all, he had done much the same thing with his new constitution in France. All over Haiti, there were state-sponsored celebrations of this new order. Louverture was eager for the public to embrace this document as the final product of all their years of struggle, as the endpoint of a great national journey out of the darkness of slavery and into the light of freedom. For a while, it seemed to work. There was a lull in the seemingly endless cycle of violence. Some sectors of the economy began to recover, and there was even a degree of cultural and political development. But there were ominous signs as well. As Toussaint consolidated absolute power over the political system, he increasingly relied on the army to maintain order and exercise his authority. The military and the state were becoming entwined. And the relationship with France really did seem to be damaged. 
Louverture had begun writing letters to Bonaparte, ensuring him of his good intentions, but had yet to receive a response. The longer this silence became, the more worrying it was. Nonetheless, this was a good period for Haiti. It was practically a golden age compared to what came before and what would come after. The economy even began to recover. Sugar exports were 30 times higher than they had been at their low point during the British invasion. Cotton production had gone up 85 times during the same period. However, both were still well below their pre-revolutionary highs, and other cash crops had barely recovered at all. The country got over a year of peace before violence erupted yet again in October 1800. This time, it was almost a replay of the Great Rebellion of 1791. All over the northern plain, cultivators on sugar plantations took up arms, massacred whites, and declared themselves in rebellion against the government. Columns of smoke dotted the horizon as plantation buildings and stockpiles of sugarcane burned. Louverture rushed to contain the uprising, and unlike the colonial regime of 1791, he had a unified government and a powerful, effective army. The rebels were quickly defeated. Suppressing the revolting cultivators must have been a strange and sad duty for Louverture and his men. They were practically fighting against themselves from nine years earlier killing and imprisoning people who basically believed the same things, and were fighting for the same cause. There was added personal heartbreak for Toussaint when he learned who had been the mastermind behind the rebellion, General Moise, one of the most popular figures in the army, and Louverture's own nephew. The same General Moise who he had nearly gone to war against Governor Edouville to protect. Louverture could not afford to play favorites in the face of treason and rebellion. Under his orders, Moise was executed. He had no other choice, but still, it could not have been an easy decision. Meanwhile, the foreboding silence from France continued. The new constitution had not been approved, nor had it been rejected. Over a year after it had gone into effect, Apparently, the matter was still under consideration. By now, Toussaint had written multiple personal letters to Bonaparte, and sent both official and unofficial envoys to Paris. No response. There was another bad omen in late 1801. Suddenly, and without explanation, the British cut off their ongoing talks with Louverture. Britain and France had just signed the preliminary agreements to the Treaty of Amiens, putting the two powers on the road to peace. In theory, this should have made the talks between Louverture and the British much easier, but instead, the British had withdrawn entirely. This suggested those preliminaries had included some kind of secret agreement that the British would stay out of Haitian affairs and the French would only have made that kind of demand if they were making their own plans for Haiti. Plans that did not include Toussaint Louverture. Louverture began to see that he might have been mistaken, that perhaps the French would not send commissioners to negotiate with him, 
but soldiers to remove him from office and impose their will on the country, destroying everything he had worked ten years to achieve. Louverture still hoped that Bonaparte would come around and give his blessing to the new political order in Haiti, but he began to prepare for the worst. He ordered fortifications built on the coast, and stepped up his purchases of arms and munitions from the United States. Many of these were placed in secret caches hidden in the impenetrable mountains and jungles of inland Haiti, in preparation for yet another prolonged guerrilla struggle. On January 29th, 1802, ships were spotted off the coast of the island. This was a massive fleet, the largest anyone had seen since the British invasion. But these ships flew the French tricolor. Louverture and his government had not been informed that Bonaparte was sending any force to the Caribbean, so clearly their intent was hostile. The worst had come to pass. What had gone wrong? Where had Louverture miscalculated? This question was hotly debated at the time and remains a topic of discussion among historians. Many, then and now, believe Toussaint had crossed some red line, angering the French and convincing Bonaparte that he had to be removed. Many pointed to the Constitution, either the document itself or the fact that it had been put into effect without approval from Paris. Others claimed it was the decision to occupy former Spanish Santo Domingo, This territory had been ceded to France in the treaty ending the war between Spain and the Republic, but Louverture had taken upon himself to occupy Santo Domingo without official orders from Paris. Or perhaps he had crossed some line in his diplomatic negotiations with the British or the Americans. Still others pointed to the various authoritarian aspects of Toussaint's government, His increasingly dictatorial methods were alienating some of his former supporters, and some of those who left Haiti complained to the government in Paris. You could also make an argument that the continuing instability, especially the War of the Knives, followed so soon by Moise's rebellion, proved that Louverture was not really in control, that a stronger hand was needed to bring stability to the colony. But if you look at the timeline of Napoleon's decision-making and the preparations for this new expedition to Haiti, no single red line leaps out. From what we can tell, Bonaparte came to this decision only after long, agonizing deliberations. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Looking at Napoleon's thinking on this issue, I see two themes emerge. 
First, a desire to restore France's imperial glory, which had been tarnished under the old regime. And second, colonial affairs was one of those rare areas of policy on which Bonaparte did not have a lot of strong views and preconceived notions, which made him open to influence by those around him. Let's take these one at a time. Decades before the outbreak of the revolution in 1789, France had lost much of its standing as a great colonial power. At its height, France's overseas empire was larger than Britain's, and in land area, it nearly rivaled the Spanish. But the old regime had lost almost everything in the disastrous Seven Years' War. Canada went to Britain, Louisiana, which included most of the modern American Midwest, plus parts of the South, went to Spain. France also lost around half its colonies in the Caribbean, and most of its footholds in India, which paved the way for the British to secure their hegemony over the subcontinent. In short, the French were reduced to a second-rate colonial power. New World colonies were supposed to form a kind of closed system. In tropical colonies, slave labor produced cash crops, which sold for a heavy markup in Europe, and provided luxury goods for the population of the colonial power. More temperate colonies were settled by free white settlers, who produced food and basic necessities to support the cash crop colonies and provided a pool of recruits for colonial militias who could defend the empire. The colonial power used the raw materials produced in the colonies to create manufactured goods, and both types of colonies were a perfect captive market for these goods. Most of the profits from all this colonial trade ended up in the hands of bankers and financiers in the colonial power who would use it to fund economic development. And of course, at every stage in this cycle, the government took a chunk for itself, mostly in the form of tariffs, trade licenses, and profits from state-owned enterprises. The whole system was lubricated by blood and suffering, from the black slaves, as we've discussed at length, from dispossessed and enslaved Native Americans, and sometimes from ordinary white colonists, who were often put into dangerous and unfamiliar situations with no support. However, from the perspective of the policymakers back in Europe, this was a virtuous cycle of profit and economic development. Of course, this is just how things were supposed to work in theory. In practice, the colonial empires were much messier. But with the loss of Louisiana and Canada, France's two main temperate colonies, the old regime lost any hope of creating this perfect closed system. Sure enough, in the late 1700s, many of the profits of France's remaining colonies in the Caribbean were reaped by Dutch, British, and American smugglers. This was a double blow for the French, as those profits were converted to capital in Amsterdam, New York, or London, instead of in Paris. And, smugglers are not known for their diligence in paying tariffs and fees, so the government was missing out on a lot of revenue. 
The colonies were also a matter of prestige and national pride. In the age of sail, it was hard for European countries to project power across thousands of miles of ocean. There were a lot of barriers to success, and only a small club of European powers had overcome them and managed to build lasting, dynamic colonial empires. Britain, Spain, Portugal, France, and the Netherlands. For all the power of the Habsburgs, they had never done it. The Scandinavian countries were wealthy and had long, storied maritime traditions, but their attempts at building overseas empires had all stalled or failed. Prussia was on the rise in Europe, but had never managed to marshal the resources for a serious attempt at foreign colonization. The various Italian states had a lot of money, but none of them had ever even bothered making the attempt. After their defeat in the Seven Years' War, the French seemed to be in danger of losing their place in this elite club, joining the ranks of the Losers and the Also-Rans, while its rivals reaped enormous windfalls. This breakdown of France's colonial empire was actually one of the long list of complaints the revolutionaries had about the old regime. We tend to think of the revolutionaries' demands as mostly either humanitarian, like lowering the price of bread, or liberal, like equality before the law and representative government. But these demands coexisted alongside more nationalistic aims. Many of the revolutionaries lamented at the damage the old regime had done to the national greatness. We've talked in past episodes about France's so-called natural borders. Many of the revolutionaries saw the failure to conquer these territories as yet another sign of the monarchy's incompetence, right alongside its failure to prevent its subjects from starving. The loss of so many colonies and the breakdown of the colonial system was another such failure, and many revolutionaries dreamed of remedying it. When Bonaparte came to power, these sentiments were already widespread within the French foreign policy establishment, and he incorporated these dreams into his agenda. As the most profitable remaining French colony, Haiti would obviously serve as the centerpiece and main economic engine of this planned imperial revival. This was all still secret to all but a few politicians and diplomats, but France had recently reacquired Louisiana from Spain. Once Napoleon got France's wealth-producing Caribbean colonies squared away, he planned to make a serious effort to colonize Louisiana thus creating that perfect closed system so desired by European policymakers, and restoring what had been destroyed by the incompetence of the old regime. So Paris did not have a lot of patience to await the results of Louverture's grand experiments with self-government, abolitionism, and racial equality. They wanted the colony under control and making money as soon as possible, so they could pursue these dreams of empire, and prove to the world that a revolutionary government could be a better steward of colonialism than the incompetent old regime. And on top of all this, as we've discussed in past episodes, the colonial trade was a major employer. Before the revolution, 
probably over 10% of all employment in France was tied to the colonies. To put that in perspective, that's roughly how important retail is to the modern American economy. And of course, there were also private interests with an economic stake in Haiti. Investors, merchants, shipping companies, and most importantly, those wealthy planters who had formerly run the colony. So there was a lot of pressure on Napoleon to finally solve this Haiti situation for strategic reasons, for national pride, to prove that the new Napoleonic regime could achieve what the old monarchy could not, for the good of the economy and all the people whose jobs depended on the colonial trade, and for the benefit of various powerful interests. Basically, everyone in France with any influence shared these goals. The question was this. Would these dreams of a revived empire best be served by partnership with Louverture, or was he an impediment who had to be removed? For once, Napoleon seems to have been agnostic on this question. In previous episodes, we've seen how Bonaparte came into office with a lot of very strong ideas about the agenda he wanted to implement. He'd spent his whole life dreaming of political power and what he would do if he ever had the chance to wield it. But those dreams rarely, if ever, ranged as far as the Caribbean. In almost every other area of policy, Napoleon immediately jumped in with both feet. But when it came to the colonies, he vacillated. We know that in his youth, Napoleon had been, in his own words, a, quote, zealous disciple, end quote, of the Abbé Reynal, an Enlightenment thinker who was known primarily for his harsh criticisms of colonialism, especially the injustices and abuses of slavery. During his youth, Bonaparte had been a Jacobin, and as we've seen, the Jacobins generally considered themselves opponents of slavery and of the planter lobby. When Bonaparte conquered Malta in 1798, he immediately abolished slavery, and even paid for freed slaves to be returned to their home countries. So, at least as a young man, it seems Napoleon had a negative view of slavery, although that's largely conjecture because, like I said, this was one of those rare political issues he didn't enjoy debating and discussing. So, we might assume that he was predisposed to a positive view of Louverture and of the Haitian Revolution. On top of all these ideological considerations, there were the personal similarities between the two men. They were both ambitious, moderate Republicans, who had risen to power through genius on the battlefield. Once in office, both men had sought to rise above petty interest group politics and appeal to their entire societies. Toussaint and Napoleon were both energetic, hands-on leaders. They even shared some of the same vices, authoritarianism, paranoia, and a tendency to micromanage. Several people who knew both men remarked that if they could only meet face-to-face, they would surely reach some kind of accommodation and emerge as allies, or even friends. Perhaps this was wishful thinking. I think if you put two powerful, ambitious people in a room together, they are just as likely to view each other as threats than as kindred spirits. But 
maybe they were onto something. So you might think Napoleon would be sympathetic to Louverture and what he was trying to achieve in Haiti. Many people at the time certainly did. However, upon assuming the office of First Consul, Bonaparte began to tilt towards a conservative, pro-planter colonial policy. In the naval ministry, which had authority over the colonies, Bonaparte's new regime appointed conservatives and blocked the appointment of anti-slavery liberals. One of these anti-slavery liberals was Etienne Laveau, the former governor of Haiti who had been a close friend and ally of Toussaint Louverture. Laveau had been slated to return to the Caribbean as governor of Guadeloupe, but Napoleon canceled this appointment at the last minute and ordered Laveau to go to Haiti to reason with Toussaint Louverture. However, this order too was canceled, and Bonaparte actually ordered him arrested under somewhat mysterious circumstances. Fortunately for Laveau, he was captured by the Royal Navy before he could be officially arrested, and then promptly returned to France only a few months later, after the signing of the Treaty of Amiens. By then, it seems the government had forgotten about the arrest order, and so he was able to return a free man. But Laveau was furious about the way he'd been treated, and disgusted with the general direction of colonial policy under Bonaparte. He was so frustrated, he withdrew from public life altogether, and retired to his chateau in Burgundy. Laveau made a brief political comeback in the 1820s, but he was old, and the country had moved on from his brand of idealistic, moderate Jacobinism. After only three years in Parliament, he was back to the life of a retired country gentleman. Laveau remained a defender of Toussaint Louverture and the Haitian Revolution until his death in 1828. Anyway, what had led Napoleon to abandon the progressive ideals of his youth and orient colonial policy towards the pro-slavery conservatives? Bonaparte's Council of State, roughly equivalent to a modern cabinet, was actually split on this issue. Remember, Napoleon drew his administration from all over the political spectrum, everyone from former Jacobins to former royalists. A lot of the men he listened to were moderate Republicans, who still harbored negative views of slavery, and recognized Toussaint Louverture as one of their own. But almost from the very beginning, when it came to colonial affairs, Napoleon tended to side with the conservatives on the council. We've seen this dynamic before, on religious policy, on the émigrés, and on the question of women's rights and family law in the new civil code. Bonaparte suddenly swung to the right on all these issues once he gained power. It seems that Toussaint Louverture and the Haitian Revolution were to be casualties of Napoleon's so-called politics of fusion, a price Bonaparte was willing to pay to settle the accounts of the revolution and heal old political divides within France. We've already seen how Bonaparte was more than willing to get his hands dirty to consolidate his new regime, turning his back on principles he had watched his comrades die for, and even committing crimes like the murder of the Duke of Enghien. It seems this accommodation with the planter lobby was yet another of these dirty compromises. 
the young Jacobin Buonaparte of eight years ago probably would not have recognized the way the first consul Bonaparte was now talking about the issue. Quote, I am for the whites because I am white. I have no other reason, and this one is good enough. How can we have given liberty to Africans, to men without any civilization, who had not the slightest idea as to what a colony, or for that matter, France, was? If the majority of the members of the convention had understood what they were doing and known about the colonies, would they have abolished slavery? I very much doubt it. End quote. It seems Bonaparte had swallowed the planter's propaganda campaign whole. These arguments were totally detached from the reality on the ground in Haiti, but they aligned perfectly with the fanciful propaganda narratives flying off the planter lobby's presses. His own official representatives in Haiti were reporting back a very different story, that whatever his faults, Toussaint Louverture was the only man capable of holding Haiti's fractured society together and maintaining some semblance of order. That the choice was not between Louverture's Haiti and a restoration of the old order, but between Louverture and chaos, and perhaps the loss of the colony. Bonaparte vacillated. He was embracing racist pro-slavery arguments in the Council of State and stacking the naval ministry with conservatives. But he made no overt moves against Louverture or black civil rights. He still hadn't answered any of Toussaint's letters, but he allowed his commission in Haiti to participate in the drafting of the new constitution. It seems Napoleon was genuinely conflicted. Finally, he wrote a letter to Louverture, praising his leadership and appointing him captain general of the colony effectively formalizing Louverture's dictatorship and accepting the new constitution. But he hesitated at the last second and did not send it. But Bonaparte couldn't stall forever. There was a ticking clock on all of these deliberations. In late September 1801, Lord Hawkesbury of Britain and Commissioner Otto of France signed a preliminary peace agreement between the United Kingdom and the Republic. We discussed this back in episode 64. This document would be the basis for the Treaty of Amiens, signed by Joseph Bonaparte and Lord Cornwallis six months later. Napoleon knew the treaty was unlikely to last. There were too many outstanding issues between Britain and France, and precious little trust. If he wanted to revive France's colonial fortunes without interference from the Royal Navy, he would have to act within the short window of peace provided by the treaty. He had to make a decision in late 1801. Would Louverture be a partner in his new ventures, or would he finally fully embrace these conservative arguments he had been trying out in the Council of State? Those sails that appeared off the coast of Haiti in 1801 showed that he had made his decision. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
The scale of this expedition proves how valuable Haiti was to the European powers. Bonaparte gave overall command to General Charles Leclerc, his own brother-in-law. Napoleon thought very highly of Leclerc, who had been by his side at Toulon and throughout the first Italian campaign, and in Egypt. In fact, Napoleon thought so highly of Leclerc that he had pushed very hard for the general to marry his sister, Pauline. Leclerc would have around 20,000 men at his disposal, roughly the same number Napoleon had during the first Italian campaign. And these would not be raw recruits, but the cream of the French army, including many veterans of Italy, Egypt, and Germany. They and their equipment and supplies would be carried on 21 frigates and 35 ships of the line, more than twice the size of the fleet which had brought the Army of the Orient to Egypt three years earlier. Contrary to popular belief, Napoleon's orders to Leclerc specifically forbade him from re-establishing slavery in the colony. Quote, The French nation will never give shackles to men it has recognized as free. End quote. However, he did order Leclerc to completely destroy black political power and shatter the fragile system of racial equality Toussaint and his allies had worked so hard to build. In politics, society, and the economy, black Haitians were to be subordinated to whites, and any who resisted were to be exiled or killed. Anyone who had participated in Toussaint's government, whatever their color, was to be deported from the colony. This would be a return to the old system, slavery in all but name. Infamously, Napoleon told Leclerc, quote, do not tolerate a single epaulette on the shoulders of these blacks, end quote. Any black person who had ever held a rank above captain was to be deported, under the theory that with their leadership removed, black Haitians would meekly accept white domination over their country. Interestingly, captain was the highest rank non-nobles had been allowed to reach in the French army under the old regime. But as the expedition reached Haiti, this dirty plan was still secret, known only to Leclerc and Bonaparte. Napoleon had instructed Leclerc to appear as a friend, flatter and placate the locals whenever possible, especially Toussaint and the government. The reimposition of white rule would come only gradually, once the expedition was firmly established on the island. Napoleon's proclamation to the people of Haiti was full of flowery praise for their revolution and admiration for their struggle against the British and Spanish. However, it also warned, quote, Traitors will be devoured by fire like dried sugarcane, end quote. In some places, the locals seemed to buy this nice guy routine, and Leclerc was able to land his troops without incident. But, Toussaint Louverture was not fooled for a minute. As soon as he received news of the French fleet, orders went out to his commanders, kill any Frenchman you can, burn the towns, and retreat into the interior. This was it. The final struggle for Haitian independence was upon them. Leclerc made it plain from the very start what type of struggle this was going to be. When the garrison of Fort Liberté resisted his landing, he had the captured survivors massacred without trial. Once again, 
Haiti would be engulfed in a pitiless war to the death. Many Louverture supporters, including many of his soldiers and officers, went over to the French. I doubt many of them actually believed all of General Leclerc's promises of friendship, but at least for the moment, the French expedition seemed too powerful to resist. Others dutifully followed Louverture's orders, burned the towns and forts they garrisoned, and melted away into the interior to prepare for the next phase of the struggle. Leclerc's first big setback came when he failed to seize the city of Cap Francais before Toussaint's men could burn it to the ground. Leclerc published a declaration demanding Louverture present himself in the ruins of Cap Francais by February 17th to swear allegiance to the Republic. Obviously, if he had done so, he would have been arrested. When the date arrived and Louverture predictably did not appear, he was officially proclaimed an outlaw. Things looked bad for Toussaint and his allies. Many of his senior generals had defected to Leclerc. Their troops had either followed them or deserted. All that was left of the army of Free Haiti was around 6,000 troops bottled up in the rugged, unpopulated interior of the colony. Toussaint's back was to the wall. But of course, we've seen this story before. When Louverture first took independent command back in 1791, he had only a few thousand men trapped in the interior by superior European forces. From that humble beginning, he had built the most powerful guerrilla force of the age, expelled the British and Spanish, and assumed control over the entire country. In fact, these dire circumstances seem to have reinvigorated Toussaint. He was back to his old self. The tired, jaded, suspicious Louverture of the past few years was replaced by the dynamic, inspiring leader who had triumphed against the coalition. Louverture's back was to the wall and his enemies were everywhere, but he thrived under these conditions. Like anyone who tried to fight the Haitians, Leclerc found it relatively easy to secure the coasts and big towns. But all his advantages evaporated whenever his troops tried to push into the interior. Louverture's scorched-earth tactics made supplies difficult to find. Louverture's troops refused to fight in the open, but bled the French with a thousand small cuts, killing stragglers, seizing supply convoys, and ambushing small patrols. By February, the expedition had already lost around 4,000 men, roughly 20% of its total strength, without fighting a major battle. There was one place where Louverture's men did offer battle, a strategic fortification at a place called Crete à Pierrot. This position controlled the approaches into the Cao Mountains, where many of the guerrillas were based, and it was highly defensible anchored on both sides by dense woods and steep hills. The perfect place to make a stand. The Haitians held Creta Pierrot for nearly three weeks in the face of repeated French assaults, before finally slipping away in the night. Leclerc lost another 1,500 men in the battle, including General Charles Dugois, one of his most senior officers who had fought alongside Bonaparte in Egypt. After only about three months in Haiti, 
nearly a quarter of the expedition was dead, and yellow fever season had only just begun. That number was bound to go much higher very soon. Leclerc was already writing letters to Napoleon asking for reinforcements, and begging to be reassigned back to Europe. Bonaparte sent him 15,000 reinforcements, with the promise of 15,000 more soon to follow, but he refused to allow Leclerc to leave. The orders Bonaparte had given Leclerc when he left France had anticipated the entire operation being over by now. By April, yellow fever was tearing through the expedition's ranks. Around 40% of Leclerc's remaining soldiers fell sick. Most would not recover. The reinforcements from France would barely be enough to replace the yellow fever casualties. Meanwhile, with the French looking weak and Toussaint surprisingly resilient, many of the people who defected to Leclerc began to have second thoughts. They had sided with France out of fear, not conviction. And with that fear dissipating, many deserted the French, or even switched sides again. Toussaint's ranks were growing, while Leclerc's were shrinking. Soon, the French found themselves unable to go on the offensive. Their remaining troops were barely adequate to maintain control over their coastal strongholds. There was nothing Leclerc could do but try to hold on and hope he could somehow outlast Louverture. It was exactly the same type of stalemate that had ensnared the British five years earlier. The combination of yellow fever, rough terrain, and effective resistance from a population that did not want to be ruled effectively made the colony unconquerable. Throughout this whole period, Louverture had repeatedly sent back-channel signals to Leclerc that he was still willing to talk. The war had turned very ugly, both sides routinely massacred prisoners, and both had committed violence against civilians. And yet, Louverture still kept the door to peace open. He had good reason to seek a truce. Despite all his surprising success against Leclerc, all was not well in Louverture's camp. Those supply caches he had placed in the interior before the invasion would not last forever. In fact, after four months of operations, Toussaint's forces were already running low on equipment and munitions. With the French Navy patrolling the seas and Leclerc in control of the coasts, they had no feasible way of replenishing these supplies. Food was becoming scarce as well. Louverture's troops were experts at surviving in the jungle, but hunting game and harvesting wild bananas is not enough to support thousands of soldiers, plus their families, plus the thousands of refugees created by Louverture's scorched-earth tactics. Leclerc's army was on a trajectory towards disaster, but so was Louverture's. And so, in the summer of 1802, the two sides agreed to a ceasefire. Toussaint seems to have entered this agreement in good faith. He agreed to disband all of his irregular forces, and in return, Leclerc agreed on an amnesty for all of Louverture's men, and would allow his regulars to keep their positions and ranks in the Republican army. The bulk of Toussaint's regulars would be dispersed throughout the colony. From what we can tell, Louverture held up his end of the bargain to the letter. 
In spite of everything that had happened over the last few months, he still considered himself French, and still believed Haiti's future was with the Republic. And so, true to his word, Toussaint began his new life as a private citizen, spending time with his family and tending to his coffee enterprises. But it only lasted about a month. Leclerc felt humiliated by the ceasefire. Bonaparte was not happy either. He sent his brother-in-law a strongly worded letter, reminding him of his orders to disarm the local Haitian army units and dismantle any remnant of black political power. Leclerc had no intention of honoring the terms of the ceasefire. He ordered one of his subordinates to write Toussaint a letter, asking for his help in restoring order to the Georges Plantation, where the local cultivators had become restive and were refusing to work. Of course, this was a trap, and it's telling that Leclerc didn't have the stomach to set it himself. Louverture arrived at the Georges Plantation on June 7th, but found no unrest. Instead, he was seized by armed French soldiers, who took him to Cap Francais under guard, where he was placed under arrest and put on a ship bound for France. It was Louverture's first time leaving his country. He was permitted to travel with his family and a few personal servants, but upon his arrival in France, they were separated. Louverture was taken to the Chateau de Joux, a military installation high in the Alps, near the Swiss border. This cold, windy location was deliberately chosen to make a warm-blooded Haitian like Toussaint as uncomfortable as possible. His captors stripped General Louverture of every dignity. He was not allowed any communication with the outside world. All his personal effects were confiscated. His jailers informed him that he had been expelled from the French army and demanded he surrender his general's uniform. They were instructed to refer to him only by his first name, never as general or governor or even as Monsieur Louverture. If you'll recall, this is how slaves were referred to before the revolution. Louverture wrote that he felt as if he'd been buried alive. Still, he remained defiant. He used this time to write a memoir, although it's not really a traditional memoir, more of a book-length argument, defending his actions and demanding his release. He also wrote letters to Bonaparte, trying to make his case, but still, Napoleon refused to respond. The writing only stopped when his jailers started refusing to provide him with paper. Louverture demanded to be formally charged with a crime so that he could defend himself in court, but no charges came. In spite of all these indignities, Toussaint stubbornly refused to admit that he was anything other than a loyal Frenchman and a good Republican. And he still maintained faith that his cause would eventually triumph. Quote, In cutting me down, only the trunk of the tree of black liberty was felled. It will grow back from the roots, because they are as deep as they are numerous. End quote. Toussaint arrived at the chateau in late August, and as the weather turned colder, his health worsened. His jailers kept a strict limit on how much firewood he was allowed to use, and every night, his cell became dangerously cold. 
Some sources say he developed tuberculosis, but I think his respiratory problems may have simply been the result of a 59-year-old man who had spent his entire life in the tropics being exposed to months of bitter alpine cold and systematic mistreatment. The winter of 1802-3 through destroyed Louverture's health. On the morning of April 7, 1803, his jailers opened his cell to discover that he had died in the night. The attempt to psychologically destroy the great general had failed. He faced death unbowed and unbroken. It's worth mentioning that the barbaric and degrading treatment Louverture received at the end of his life was more than a series of unconnected acts of cruelty by his jailers. They were following orders from high places. This was a calculated campaign to break the general's spirit. It was Louverture's last fight, and he won. General Toussaint Louverture's sorrows were finally over. Sadly, Hades were just beginning. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Unsurprisingly, the ceasefire between former Louverture loyalists and Leclerc's expedition did not last. In the Haitian camp, Toussaint's former lieutenants all vied to fill his shoes. The man who emerged as the paramount commander was a former field slave turned officer named Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Dessalines was a controversial figure. To his enemies, he was the most violent and extreme member of Toussaint's inner circle. The remaining white planters of Haiti considered Dessalines gaining power to be the worst-case scenario for a post-Toussaint Haiti. But his numerous supporters adored him. He was a genius at guerrilla warfare. As a military commander, he almost matched Louverture. And he was a true man of the people. He never shied away from his origins. Even when Toussaint instituted harsh measures on the cultivators, they still believed Dessalines was fighting for them and representing their interests in Louverture's government, which many black Haitians privately felt had become too friendly with certain white interests. During Toussaint's rule, Dessalines typically acted as enforcer, allowing Louverture to play the conciliatory statesman while he did all the dirty work. People learned to fear Dessalines, and not without reason. But during the fight against Leclerc, he had begun to step out of Toussaint's shadow, and was coming into his own as a statesman and political leader. Now, with Louverture gone, the 43-year-old Dessalines took the reins. 
although many of his fellow Haitian generals saw this as a temporary state of affairs. Meanwhile, Napoleon was raising the stakes of this war. Local French authorities on the island of Guadeloupe had taken it upon themselves to reinstitute slavery. Technically, this was illegal. The French governor, his administration, and the local planters could all have been prosecuted as criminals. But, in the summer of 1802, Bonaparte issued a decree ratifying their decision. This act sent shockwaves throughout the French Caribbean. From the moment Leclerc landed in Haiti, there was widespread fear that his true agenda involved the restoration of slavery. The example of Guadeloupe seemed to confirm those fears. Napoleon's defenders often point out that his orders to Leclerc explicitly stated that slavery would not be restored. However, that statement had applied to all French colonies, and he had just contradicted it. Guadeloupe was not a special case. A year later, Napoleon signed a similar decree relating to French Guiana. Perhaps, if the expedition had succeeded, Haiti would have remained an exception. But we have every reason to suspect that once the country was firmly under French control, Bonaparte would have made the same compromise that he did in every other colony, and facilitated the return of slavery. As Dessalines consolidated his position as the foremost Haitian commander, there was also a change of leadership on the French side. On November 2nd, 1802, Napoleon's brother-in-law, General Charles Leclerc, died of yellow fever. In general, Napoleon was a pretty decent judge of character, but in Leclerc's case, he missed the mark. Napoleon believed his brother-in-law was a man of destiny who would achieve great things. In fact, Leclerc was a brave and reasonably competent battlefield commander, but pretty hopeless at anything more complicated than leading a cavalry squadron. The people of Haiti did not mourn his loss, but perhaps they would have if they knew what was coming. With Leclerc dead, the expedition's second-in-command assumed authority, General Donatien-Marie-Joseph de Vimeur de Rochambeau. You may recognize that name. He was the son of the famous Rochambeau from the American War of Independence. We have discussed a lot of unsavory characters on this show. This was a very violent period of history, and there are a lot of villains in this story. But I don't think any of them are as malevolent as General Rochambeau. The crimes he carried out in Haiti are beyond description, beyond imagination. General Leclerc wasn't exactly Gandhi, but his abuses and cruelties are, sadly, pretty much the norm for a counterinsurgency operation in the colonies in this era. Rochambeau went far beyond anything that could be considered typical, even for this very violent time and setting. It's often speculated that there was actually something psychologically wrong with him, and I think these speculations may be correct. The spectacular nature of Rochambeau's violence, and the zeal with which he carried it out, often personally, sometimes make him seem more like a serial killer in uniform than a military officer. He was in command of the whole expedition. It was far beneath his station to personally kill or torture captured Haitians, but he seemed to enjoy it. 
Perhaps Rochambeau actually was some kind of psychopath. Or perhaps there was simply something sociopathic about this whole war that awakened a dark part of Rochambeau's character. One thing is clear, he had a deep, visceral hatred of black people. He habitually referred to them as monkeys, and talked openly of exterminating them. After taking command of the expedition, Rochambeau ordered a pack of slave-catching dogs from Spanish Cuba. These dogs became something of an obsession for the general. He often bragged that he only fed them on living human beings. That is the type of monster Rochambeau was. And remember, this is the military. His men took their cues from their commander's behavior. The expedition hadn't exactly been warm and friendly under Leclerc's command, but once Rochambeau took over, he gave license to all of the soldiers' worst instincts. Whatever was going on in his warped brain, some of Rochambeau's cruelty may have been calculated. The expedition was in a very tough spot. They had suffered horrible casualties, both from combat and from yellow fever. By this stage, more than half were dead. With their numbers so depleted, the chances of defeating Dessalines and pacifying the island were slim. Perhaps General Rochambeau believed his only chance for victory was to terrorize the people into submission. A calculation that fit perfectly with his propensity for violence and insane hatred of blacks. In fact, Rochambeau's depravity had the opposite effect. Soon, the whole country was united in outrage at French atrocities. Thousands flocked to join Dessalines to fight against this butcher of their countrymen. Even men who had fought for André Rigaud in the War of the Knives now joined together with their former enemies to defeat Rochambeau. Amazingly, even some of Rochambeau's white European soldiers defected to the Haitians. These were mostly Poles, who knew what it was like to see their homeland subjugated and their people repressed. They hated the Russians and the Austrians for what they had done to Poland, and they wanted no part of doing the same thing to Haiti. Of course, even after this backlash, Rochambeau refused to change course. It seems his desire to take part in these orgies of violence took precedence over completing his mission. And so, the ranks of the Haitian army grew, the area controlled by the French shrank, and the violence intensified. The Napoleonic era saw some very nasty wars. These types of counterinsurgency campaigns could be particularly ugly. We've already seen a few examples. The rebellion in the Vendée, the suppression of the Great Irish Rebellion of 1798, the repression of the Poles by the Eastern Powers, and the violence in Italy between the French and their supporters and defenders of the Old Order. We will see more of this in the future, including the notorious Spanish Guerrilla War. But out of all these brutal conflicts, I don't think any of them can top this final act of the Haitian Revolution. This was pure horror, the worst behavior human beings are capable of. This was war stripped of all law and all mercy, and all of the illusions of gentlemanly conduct. The final nail in the expedition's coffin came in the spring of 1803. Everyone knew the Treaty of Amiens was unlikely to last, 
but few would have guessed it would take only a year for war to return. In May, Britain declared war on France. With the Royal Navy once again standing between the expedition and their only source of supply and reinforcement, it was now a matter of time until Rochambeau was finally defeated. By late 1803, it was almost over. Dessalines controlled most of the country. Rochambeau was reduced to a small perimeter around his base of operations, Cap Francais, with somewhere around 5,000 troops, all that remained of the roughly 50,000 Frenchmen who had been sent to the colony. Dessalines prepared for a final push to drive the French behind the city's defenses, where they and their ships could be bombarded with artillery and forced to surrender. The attack was set for a place called Vertier, just outside Cap Francais. Part of the French defensive line was a fortification called Fort Breda, all that remained of the Breda plantation where Toussaint Louverture was born. The French held on bitterly, but Dessalines' attack was irresistible. Rochambeau was forced to retreat into the city after the loss of over a thousand men, more than 20% of his remaining troops. That night, Rochambeau opened surrender negotiations. For the second time in five years, the Haitians had succeeded in expelling one of the great powers from their country. Rochambeau never paid for his crimes. He surrendered to Dessalines, but only conditionally. He and his men were allowed to leave Haiti unmolested. However, on the way back to France, his ship was seized by the Royal Navy, and Rochambeau was taken into captivity in Britain. He was imprisoned for the better part of a decade, although as a general and an aristocrat, his accommodations were quite comfortable. In 1811, he was exchanged for a high-ranking British officer. Despite his disgraceful conduct in Haiti, he was welcomed back into French high society without incident. Rochambeau enjoyed two years of freedom before being mortally wounded at the Battle of Leipzig in 1813, dying at the age of 58. On January 1, 1804, General Jean-Jacques Dessalines declared an independent Republic of Haiti. Soon after, he made his most notorious edict as the new republic's president. He ordered most of the remaining white population of Haiti massacred. Exceptions were made for public servants, priests, and doctors, and for people who had taken up arms against France, and those who were married to non-whites, and a few other small groups, but everyone else was to be put to the sword. These killings were an ugly business, mostly carried out by the army, but also by civilians. They were generally disorganized, impromptu affairs, not official state executions. The massacres were not popular with the people of Haiti. President Dessalines had to tour around the country to personally ensure they were actually carried out. Under the new constitution, all the remaining people of the island, whatever their racial background, were officially declared black. All racial distinctions between Haitians were outlawed. By the end of the year, President Dessalines had declared himself Emperor Jacques of the new Empire of Haiti. He was assassinated in 1806. France's dreams of reviving her colonial empire were shattered. 
Supposedly, when he learned of Rochambeau's surrender, Napoleon exclaimed, quote, Damned coffee, damned sugar, damned colonies. End quote. Louisiana was sold to the United States. Without Haiti to act as the economic engine of a revived colonial system, there was no point in going to the effort and expense of building up Louisiana with French settlers and investment. Indirectly, Dessalines' victory had changed the destiny of the entire North American continent, but we'll talk about that in a future episode. That left France's other colonies as remainders, vestigial appendages, too small and insignificant to play any role in Napoleon's grand ambitions, but still profitable, and still very important to certain powerful interests inside France. So perhaps it's no surprise that Bonaparte more or less allowed these powerful interests to drive colonial policy. He had always considered the colonies to be a sideshow to the main event in Europe. Now that his plans to rebuild France's empire had been thwarted, why not just give the planters what they wanted? In his later years, Napoleon would acknowledge the expedition to Haiti as a mistake. Napoleon defended most of his actions to the end, including a lot of things that are almost universally regarded as mistakes today. Haiti was a rare case in which he was quite candid in admitting that he had made the wrong decision, that he should have backed Louverture. He gave several different explanations for this mistake, but I think we can get the clearest window into his true feelings from his correspondence with his foreign minister, Talleyrand written shortly before the departure of the expedition. These were not after-the-fact justifications, but the contemporary deliberations between the head of state who ordered the invasion and his chief foreign policy expert. In these letters, Bonaparte said he was not motivated by economic concerns, but that Louverture had become too independent, and that the Haitian Revolution had become a source of chaos. He compared Haiti to the city of Algiers, which at this time was ruled by the infamous Barbary pirates, and widely seen in Europe as an outpost of lawlessness and crime. Thus, Napoleon believed the colony had to be brought under control by an outside force. In these letters, and in his statements to the Council of State, I think we can see how the propaganda of the planter lobby had gotten inside the first consul's head. And this seems to have been subconscious. Napoleon rejected the idea that he was undertaking the invasion for economic reasons, and yet his rationales came straight off the presses of the planter lobby, who were motivated by their economic interest in the island. In his later years, Napoleon admitted that his colonial policy had done nothing but enrich the planters, but, judging by the content of his letters to Talleyrand, he was not aware at the time of the degree to which they were influencing his policies. Of course, none of this should be taken as an exoneration of Napoleon's conduct. He was one of history's great micromanagers. If he had chosen to make colonial policy a priority, he would not have allowed himself to be led down this road so easily. And remember, this is the same man who had once declared himself a zealous disciple of the anti-slavery writer, the Abbé Renal. At least in his youth, 
Napoleon had been aware that the system of white domination and chattel slavery in the New World was not only deeply immoral, but dangerously unstable. Still, he allowed himself to be led into supporting this chaotic system, which he knew to be wrong. Bonaparte prided himself on being willing to make the tough decisions, being able to set aside ideology, sentimentality, and personal attachment, and look clear-eyed at the national interest. I believe this is what he thought he was doing in ordering the invasion of Haiti, setting aside any personal sentimental attachment he might have had to the anti-slavery cause, and doing what was necessary to restore order. But what a bad miscalculation this was. The whole world had just seen the British fail to pacify Haiti with nearly a 100,000 men supported by the Royal Navy. Apparently, Bonaparte believed his brother-in-law could do it with 20,000 men, backed up by a much smaller and much less capable navy. And he knew they would have only a very short window to carry out this operation before France and Britain returned to war. Looking at the real situation in Haiti, the very idea of mounting an expedition to reinstate white supremacy by force seems almost ludicrous. Only Napoleon's vanity and his decision to allow the planter lobby to drive colonial policy made this folly seem like hard-nosed practicality. Haiti would pay the price for this folly for generations to come. In private, Napoleon was quite candid in admitting he made mistakes in his Haiti policy, but he never allowed any kind of official recognition of France's defeat. Throughout the rest of our story, Haiti will remain in a state of limbo, de facto independent, but legally still a French possession, its government unrecognized by most of the world. Ironically, Napoleon's own actions had turned Haiti into the very thing he had feared it would become, an outlaw state, totally outside of French influence. Bonaparte's decision to attempt to crush the Haitian Revolution and reimpose white domination stands out as one of the most tragic and shameful parts of his legacy. Today, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and one of the poorest anywhere on Earth and still racked by social and political problems, many of which have their roots in this era. Not only did Napoleon's decision lead to all the death and barbarism of the expedition, he helped put the country on a path to misery, which it is still struggling to change. Whatever good things you can say about Bonaparte's legacy, his civil code, the expansion of liberal ideas and destruction of feudalism, People will always curse his name in Haiti as the man who unleashed beasts like Leclerc and Rochambeau on their country and tried to take their freedom. Bonaparte's defenders will point out that he was not directly responsible for the worst abuses of the expedition. His orders said nothing about massacres or torture, and certainly nothing about feeding people to dogs. That's all true. But... If Napoleon had approached this issue with his typical care and attention to detail, he might have had some idea of the type of horrors entailed in a colonial anti-insurgency campaign. The example of the British experience in Haiti was quite well documented. 
There were reams of reports at the Naval Ministry he could have read if he'd been so inclined, written by the very people the expedition would go on to fight. Realistically, the only option that had any chance of creating a stable, prosperous Haiti under French sovereignty would have been to embrace Toussaint Louverture and accept a significant degree of Haitian autonomy. The Haitian Revolution had gained too much momentum to be stopped by any outside force. There are countless examples from all over the New World of formerly enslaved people choosing death rather than returning to slavery. Once hundreds of thousands of Haitians tasted freedom, they would not give it up without a fight. And Haiti's geography created a perfect natural fortress from which to defend this freedom. It's easy to see why the planter lobby could not accept this reality. They were cut out of this new vision of Haiti, replaced by Toussaint's cronies and the generals of the Haitian army. But the Haitians could have had a chance to make this work, if France's leadership had been willing to work with them. They needed someone with the vision to understand this new reality, and someone who was open enough to change to accept it. They needed someone who was willing to look beyond the parochial demands of interest groups, to see the big picture, and act for the common good, and with the power to actually fight those interest groups and win, if that's what it came to. It has to be said, Napoleon fit the bill. He had all these qualities. If he had only taken it upon himself to take this issue seriously and do what needed to be done, things could have been different. In fact, things very nearly were different. Napoleon actually wrote the letter that would have put the relationship between France and Haiti on a totally different course. All it would have taken is one short sentence, telling his aides to send that letter, and the destiny of Haiti, and possibly even the history of the entire Western Hemisphere and the course of the Napoleonic Wars, would have changed. But we don't judge people on what they almost did and political leaders don't get a pass for the unintended consequences of their policies. However you look at it, Haiti has to go down in history as one of Napoleon's great failures, a failure made all the more tragic because it had such dire, long-lasting consequences, and because it was not a foregone conclusion. This failure is a reminder of Bonaparte's limitations. For all his talk of rising above petty factional politics, Napoleon was, like any other politician, beholden to powerful interest groups within his own country. His seemingly boundless energy and unceasing attention to detail actually did have limits. Bonaparte fancied himself as guided only by his own intellect, but clearly, he too was susceptible to influence. His new state, which his supporters claimed was ushering in a new era of history, was subject to the same biases and economic pressures as every other European great power. This new type of citizen army, forged in the fires of revolution, was just as capable of committing atrocities as any other army. With that, we'll close the book on Haiti. Next episode, we'll be back in Europe where First Consul Bonaparte was on the verge of becoming Emperor Napoleon. Until then, thanks for listening. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesse from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history. A journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.